Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm standing up for Plato. So Plato is, of course, one of the great philosophers of all time. He was born in the last third of the 5th century BCE, sometime to about 428 to 423 BCE. He's born to a very good family, a very well-connected political family. And like all great men, events of his childhood take on a sort of omen quality after the fact, right? Ordinary things happening take on a sort of, ooh, predicting the future kind of quality. In the case of Plato, uh, we're told by Cicero, who's writing several hundred years later, that a swarm of bees, I'm so afraid of bees, I can barely tell you this story without retching. <laughs> I just can't emphasize this enough. A swarm of bees lands on his mouth and this predicts not, as you would assume, a perfectly valid lifelong fear of bees, <laughs> um, but rather that he'll have this sort of beautiful honey eloquence. He'll have this beautiful capacity for sweet rhetoric, which is, of course, absolutely true. Um, it's not the only animal that we have in connection with Plato. Um, he is also compared by one of his unfavorable contemporaries, a man named Antisthenes, he says he is, Plato is exactly like a frisky horse. <laughs> I know. You definitely don't get that from his prose. I'll tell you that for nothing. <laughs> Plato has no problem calling himself a teacher in the same way that Socrates does. Socrates always banishes the idea that he's a teacher. But Plato sets up the academy, from which we get the word academy. Um, <laughs> amongst his alumni... <laughs> He can include, for example, Aristotle. That's quite good, isn't it? And then Aristotle, of course, goes on to teach, amongst others, Alexander the Great. So there's a direct intellectual line between Socrates via Plato, Aristotle to Alexander the Great. That is some good alumniing, is all I'm saying. <laughs> there it is. So he's very well connected. He would probably have gone into politics, given uh, his political relatives, had it not been for a terrible tragedy that befalls him when he is in his 20s. And that is the death of his great friend and mentor, Socrates, who is of course, executed by the city-state of Athens. They force him to drink hemlock. And this is so traumatic for Plato, perhaps, that uh, he goes into philosophy for the rest of his life rather than politics. The good thing about this, of course, is it means we have these amazing dialogues in which uh, Socrates has the starring role, always asking questions, always asking the question, te esti, what is it? And he always wants to know, what is an abstract thing? What is truth, beauty, piety, knowledge, justice? These are the questions that plague Socrates. The trouble is, of course, it's very hard to work out where the dividing line is between what Socrates thinks and what Plato thinks, right? So if this Socrates, as told by Plato, is he telling us everything that Socrates actually thought and Plato is just a faithful amanuensis, just recording everything that, that Socrates said? Or at the other extreme, is this not at all what Socrates thought, right? This is exactly what Plato thinks and Socrates is just a ventriloquist dummy, well, in the early dialogues, Socrates tends to ask, Socrates is basically a nihilist, right? Socrates asks the question, which is, what is beauty? What is justice? And then some poor, unfortunate, pompous soul wanders over and says, I know the answer to that, Socrates. And then Socrates demolishes him in front of everybody around him until he's practically crying. And then at the end of it, he goes, well, I think we all agree we know nothing about truth or beauty. And that's better for everybody. And then the person goes, yes, thank you, Socrates, very much. And then we as readers try to be surprised that he is executed by the state at the age of 70 when he might legitimately have been expected to die quite soon anyway. <laughs> 
And now I'd like to introduce you to my guests for today, Professor Edith Hall and Philippa Perry. Edith, Professor of Classics at King's College London. Yes. I was hoping you might talk a little bit about the brilliance of Plato's prose. I know you are a big fan of Aristotle, <laughs> but I think even you, Aristotle's number one fan, wouldn't say he was the better writer of the two. The problem for poor old Aristotle is that he actually wrote elegant dialogues for giving in public lectures, and they've all been lost. I mean, so look, can we just get that aside? Yes. Okay. So we've got his lecture notes. We've got his very, very intense lecture notes for the hyper-educated students doing their doctorates in advanced philosophy and physics at the Lyceum, which is where we get the word Lyceum from. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Plato, Plato is the first unbelievably great prose artist in philosophical thought. I mean, he set the bar so high that nobody's ever really got anywhere near it. And he very cunningly decided to use this dialogue form, which makes it performative. We know that Plato's dialogues were actually performed as after-dinner entertainment. They're in different lengths. You know, you can order a 20-minute dialogue or, <laughs> uh, or up to about four hours, which is precisely the length of a whole tragic performance and he has very very well defined characters you carefully brought out how Socrates always wins you know it's, <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit like another episode of the Lone Ranger or something and he's given us some of the great purple patches of world literature not just the description of Atlantis which is just extraordinary piece of, of prose which has utterly affected the future of science fiction um, you know it, it, it is the first great piece of description of a, an elsewhere that is just sort of weird and supernatural that people really you know lived in and Jules Verne and all the, the other founders of science fiction absolutely acknowledged that but he gave us in almost every dialogue there's a long mythical narrative my own favorite is in the Protagoras now Protagoras is a dialogue where Socrates meets the probably greatest ever political theorist before him and he's the one who gives us the story of the ascent of man, the Prometheus myth. Prometheus gives man fire, and we have the description of how man comes out of basically Paleolithic life to settled cities, farming, literacy, medicine, divination, then to actually political theory, having to make a city together. And it's the great democratic foundation myth, which, you know, Plato being a horrible old oligarch and a tyrant and pro an elite, hyper-educated, hyper-rich ruling class, while all the proletariat did the hard work. Excuse me, Natalie, I know you like Plato. No, it's fine, I do <laughs> like it. <him. laughs> um, it's very good, I think, that he actually treats the great political theorists of the Athenian democracy with that amount of respect. So I respect him a bit more because of that. <laughs> thank you very much and I, on behalf of Plato I thank you <laughs> so that's basically the pattern of those um, I think the nihilism isn't enough for Plato he wants an answer to, he answers the question what is it and the answer to that as far as Plato is concerned is the forms these ideas these perfect versions of things so for example beauty. Um, there are so many different examples of beautiful things in the world, a beautiful singing voice, beautiful deed, beautiful flower, beautiful person, beautiful behaviour. And for Plato, all of those things partake of an abstract form of beauty, the perfect ideal of beauty. I don't know why I'm making it round. Um, <laughs> those of you at home, I'm bizarrely turning it into a sphere. I, I can't tell you why. Apparently, I think beauty is round. Oh, I do. I like Mr. Happy. That's probably why. Um, <laughs> 
sometimes the words just come straight out before I remember I'm supposed to be high-minded. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I like spherical things. No, worse, not better. Um, so there's a perfect form of beauty, and all earthly beautiful things have a bit of that, and that's how we can identify that, we're, that we know they're all beautiful. If that sounds too weird, the abstract, let's try it with a concrete example. Yes? Yes. So let's do it with um, a chair, right? We all know what a chair is, yes? It's got four legs and you sit on it. And a back. Does it have a back? Because otherwise it's a stool, right? Okay, so if it has just three legs and no back, that's a stool, right? But if we put a back on that stool, does it become a chair then or not? Hmm, difficult. Actually, it doesn't live through the era of armchairs, but an armchair doesn't maybe have the same leg. It might just be an office chair, obviously Plato, a long time before casters. Um, but... <laughs> His loss, I think we can all agree. But my office chair, no, I know, I'm quite fancy. <laughs> oh, cast, doesn't Natalie? No, I know. Um, but right, that's just got one leg and then wheels at the bottom. So, and yet somehow we can identify that all those things are chairs, right? But here's the really difficult part. Imagine that you have a maiden aunt and she has an odd taste in ornaments. It's not such a leap for some of you as others, is it? Some of you are just remembering. <laughs> Some of you are imagining. Right, and then on her, say, windowsill, for reasons not known to you, she has got a thing which is like a, a flower pot with plants in it, growing out of it, and that is next to a small, for the purposes of description only, not value judgment, ornamental chair in it. That chair is maybe ceramic. You can't sit on it, it's tiny, and it's hideous, <laughs> and it's got a plant next to it, and yet somehow we all know, you know what I mean when I describe it. Right? Because it must have partaken of the eternal form of chair. <laughs> Good, I'm glad we're all agreed. <laughs> and so alongside, so that we can recognise these forms, because these forms exist, these perfect versions of truth and beauty and so on, and chairs, um, exist in another dimension, as we would probably say, in a parallel universe. Um, we can't see them or touch them or taste them. They're separate from us. But somehow we can... We can identify examples of them in our perceptible universe. And that's because of anamnesis, I'm glad you ask, because of recollection. <laughs> For Plato, before we're born, we have a, a prenatal closeness to those forms. And then when we're born, we forget it all. And we spend the rest of our lives learning knowledge. But for Plato, we're not learning for the first time. We're recollecting. We're trying to regain the knowledge that we once had. We once knew what equality was, which is why if you take a toddler and have two biscuits, one of which is really big and one of which is really small, and say, this is equal, and take the big biscuit, that toddler is not going to buy that. <laughs> they have a prenatal understanding of the eternal platonic form of equality. And they also know you can't be trusted with a biscuit. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> Philippa Perry, as an excellent psychotherapist. Just a psychotherapist. No, you are excellent. <laughs> you are completely excellent. <laughs> the theory of forms, I find it very tempting, even though I know it's not true. I find it, there's something very alluring about it as an explanation that we tend to see the real world sometimes as a sort of faulty copy of something perfect. And that seems to me quite common that we tend to idealise the life of other people, whether it's a celebrity mm -hmm. or someone we know or somebody we know slightly distantly, or somebody we know on social media. Do you think that there's a, a human tendency to do that, that Plato sort of tapped yes, into? Yes, what we, what we tend to do is compare people's public persona with our own private agonies. 
So the perfect is out there rather than within us. But I really like the way Plato has this thing of you know, the perfect and the not perfect. And it does fit in with quite a few modern ideas now. One of which is that in the womb, we do actually have synchronicity with our environment because all our needs are met magically, almost, by nature. We get everything we want from the placenta. We don't cry until we're born. We don't cry in the womb. We appear to be at one with the mother. And there's this thing of, are we searching for that oneness from birth onwards to, to get back in the womb? And there's some sort of Plato-like ideas about that, aren't there? I'm not, I can't remember. I only read Plato in Wikipedia this afternoon. But... Um... <laughs> <laughs> My said I wasn't guess, excellent. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> But this idea of perfection, sold to us by Mary Berry on The Great British Baker. <laughs> I'm looking for absolute perfection. She says, as though it exists. She and does make a nice cake, though. Be fair. <laughs> Be fair. That looks a good cake. But this idea of perfection is sold to us. And so we can be quite fearful that we haven't got it. And also... If we have narcissistic tendencies, we tend to think, unless we're the best or perfect, then we're worthless and nothing. This idea of bumbling along is somehow not sold to us as good enough by advertising or, or by the Great British Bake Off, actually. <laughs> but advertising really depends on that. I mean, I, I genuinely think there's a kind of platonic subtext to advertising because we're always being presented with the next car, the next you know, phone, the next computer. It's so beautiful. It makes the old thing look like a horrible old brick. This is perfect. It's the ideal thing. I think advertising really plays on our sense that there's something perfect, that if we could just replace what we have with this new perfect thing, then we would be happy. And, but of and course, really, that's not true. what we're trying to do is get back into the womb. Which you're so really going to do. And so, as an excellent therapist, it's, it's no good saying... You've, you've just she told was people... so not in my office today, this woman. <laughs> no, nor were any patients. You were reading about Plato on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's why we're so dissatisfied. <laughs> but does it make us happier or less happy than focusing on these kind of abstract forms of perfection? I feel like it must make us less happy. Yes, because I think it does make us less happy because it makes us not good enough. And... Life is but rupture and repair. We never get perfection. You know, we steer too far to, in one direction, then we oversteer in the other, and we, and, and we miss perfection every time. And that is what life is. It's bumbling through. But the capitalist society depends on our being unhappy so that we buy things to try and make us happy. So we do need the unhappiness in order to propel us to buy things in order to keep the economy going. <laughs> So perhaps I shouldn't say too much about it, otherwise Rome will fall. <laughs> or Athens. Oh, whoops. 
I love Plato on theory of mind and memory and things, even though I know neurologically it's been superseded in some ways slightly. But I love him. My favourite bit of the Theaetetus, which is his epistemology dialogue, he offers ways of how our minds work, like models for how our minds work, beautiful metaphors. And one of them, even though he picks holes in it himself, one of them is the aviary. We have an aviary in our minds with birds flying around it, and the birds represent the facts, the bits of knowledge, and we try to catch the bird. It's like having a birdhouse in your soul, right? Like, they might be giants. It's exactly like, yes, who knew that late 80s pop was basically the same as Plato? Just me, everyone, that's fine. But... Nonetheless, we have an aviary in our minds, and, and, that's, and so we're always trying to catch the right bit of information. And considering just how long before cinema Plato lived, that is the perfect illustration of the phenomenon where you're watching a film going, what have I seen that guy in? <laughs> no, not that. No. Is he the guy in The Fugitive? Is he that guy from The Fugitive? And then you suddenly convince yourself he's a completely different person. You've caught the wrong bird. Is what's happened. You just caught the wrong bird in your mental aviary. And that explains why I cannot tell the difference between Naomi Watts and Charlize Theron. <laughs> Not even if they're standing next to each other. How do they do it? They just merge into one. And don't think I've just got some kind of weird, pretty blonde lady kind of issue. I don't. I also have total Gerard Butler blindness. Fact. <laughs> I cannot identify him twice. I can't do it. It's like a whole new person to me every time. You're kidding me? The guy from the 300? Really? With the... Really? I can't do it. Butler blindness. Um, is it his literary prowess that's allowed him to have such an incredible influence? Because he's loved in the Renaissance as well, I think. And... Uh, oh, heavens yes. I mean, the Re Renaissance became a sort of great showdown, weirdly, between Christians who tried to force Aristotle to suit Christianity and Christians who tried to force Plato <laughs> to... <laughs> suit Christianity in the 15th century, Cosimo de' Medici actually set up a new academy in Florence and they invited lots of people there where they fought out the great battle between idealism, which is the platonic idea that there is a precious world of forms of ideas which is far superior to this revolting fleshly thing that you can discern by your senses, which has bodies and women in it and things like that. <laughs> and um, the true world of ideas, the big difference is between that is in the real world, women have birth to material babies. In the world of ideas, men have male souls that give birth to ideas, right? Yes. My theory on this, though, is that Plato was actually extremely short-sighted. All right. The theory of the caves, if you can't actually see the empirical world, I speak as someone who's minus 10 diopters, all right? You know, I've got the strongest contact lenses that the world can have. Well done. I don't think that Plato, if he's got a big bulgy forehead, also the wrestling is a clue, because he couldn't throw arrows. Because he couldn't see where they were yeah, going to go. Yeah, wrestling is the only sport you can do without being able to see properly, right? <laughs> he couldn't see the real world. He could only hear words like chair, chair. So the world of ideas is in his head. Aristotle, who was the empiricist, wasn't short-sighted. We actually have proof because in one of his accounts on astronomy, he's very good on the stars, he talks about sitting in, in gardens of the academy as a student watching an eclipse, and he describes in minute detail, because it's actually Mars, which they called Aries, uh, and the moon, and he's working out the relative distances of the moon. And we, you know, if he could see that, then he can't have been short-sighted. <laughs> Bonus fact. Case. No, I, it, it, it is rested. 
like I say, the birdhouse in your soul, the aviary in your mind, is um, one of the more beautiful uh, metaphors in Plato, but it certainly isn't the only one. He is most famous, perhaps, for the cave in the Republic, in which we're not really seeing real things in the perceptible world, because the perceptible world is inferior in every way to the form world. Uh, so what we see instead are the shadows flickering in the light of a, a rubbishy fire inside a cave on a cave wall. We're seeing the shadows of things. That's how terrible our lived experience is. That is not my favourite one. My favourite one is, it's actually, it's not even Atlantis. Because what about the Ring of Gyges? I'm glad you ask. In which, <laughs> it's an ethical question. The Ring of Gyges, you put the ring on and it makes you invisible. So the question is, how would you behave if you couldn't be seen? Ah, I'm just saying J.R.R. Tolkien may not have been the first person to come up with the idea of a ring that gives you superpowers, thanks Plato. Um, I guess one last question is, do you like the version of Socrates that we have in Plato, either or indeed both of you? I feel like no matter how monstrous he is, he is a brilliantly drawn character. And I don't think he would have this lasting legacy if it weren't for Plato's sort of loving drawing. I get so annoyed with Socrates. I, I, I would voted for him to drink the hemorrhoid. No, you would not. I would. <laughs> Philippa Perry, you would not. I would so. He because was 70. Yeah. Save the old well, people's Can I just say, he was, it was given the alternative of retiring out of Athens, going somewhere else, and he had friends who would pay for him to do that. He wanted to die a theatrical martyr's death. And he, see, you I, see, I was right not yeah, to like him. So I'm afraid <laughs> I, I would have actually been, been um, voting with my colleague here. Wow. <laughs> this is a very much more brutal programme than I was anticipating it being. What annoys me about Socrates <laughs> is that he never puts forward an argument of his own, he just picks yours apart. He and does I just do think. That. That's a bit mean, Socrates. There is actually a form of therapy called Socratean therapy when you do just that to your clients. I might take it up, actually. It sounds quite enjoyable. But... <laughs> he's, also, he's also extremely mean to, to his, his wife, you know. He she comes to say wife, goodbye, yeah. good, goodbye and is weeping, and he sort of basically says, go away, you know, you horrible little material world person. Yes. Uh, with your fleshly womb. Uh, <laughs> it's, a charming portrait, and in fact, because we have one other portrait by a, a student at the academy, namely Xenophon, which does coincide to such a large degree with a certain kind of picture of faux bumbling, which has actually got a laser beam brain behind it, but it is kindly and clearly has a magnetic appeal for, for young and clever men. You know, they want to hang around and, 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 and listen to it. So, I, yes, I, would, um, I, I think it probably is quite authentic. My real problem, it, though, is that Plato is from this very, 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 what we would call right-wing family, and his own uncles um, are heavily involved in, in the second oligarchic coup and were very, very sinister people. I like to think that Plato really couldn't face all that and didn't want to rock boats, which is why he retired into the academy and, and indeed showed us what a, a pen artist he, he is and, and, and has left us these incredible, remarkable texts. Now you've said laser mind in a bumbling body, it makes me realise that the reason I like Socrates is because he reminds me of Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> Plato's a big fan of practical philosophy. He goes and advises foreign rulers, sometimes with more success than others. He dies midway through the 4th century BCE, and he is accompanied, so the legend has it, at his death, by a Thracian girl playing the flute. 
Now, here's the thing. Generally, in ancient Greece, if somebody says flute girl, it's a euphemism for prostitute. <laughs> but in this instance, I think she probably was just playing the flute. And that also isn't a euphemism. Oh, dear. <laughs> but my absolute favourite bit of Plato... Uh, appears in what is, in terms of the chronology of Socrates, the very last one, the Phaedo, the one that's um, written, set on Socrates' deathbed. And I love it because it sets up one of the most brilliant literary puzzles of all time. And this is the puzzle. So at the beginning of the Phaedo, Plato gives a sort of list of people who were present. Plato wasn't there because he was ill. So it was a lot less creepy to refer to yourself in the third person before Donald Trump, wasn't it? <laughs> just become slightly worse now. And then the dialogue goes on, and it's very high-minded and beautiful, and uh, during it, Socrates drinks the hemlock, which will kill him. And that there's a very famous and very lovely painting, and I think it's at the Met in New York, of him on his last, and he sort of... It makes drinking hemlock look a lot more glamorous than it actually would have been. <laughs> and then at the very end of it, Socrates' last words, baffled people for millennia. Because his final words are, he says, um, we owe a cockerel, a sacrificial victim, we owe a cockerel to Asclepius who's the god of healing. He says, we are a cockerel to Asclepius. Will you see that the debt is paid? Those are pretty opaque last words, right? What is he talking about? He can't mean that he's cured. He's just drunk hemlock. That ship has really sailed. <laughs> There's no bit where you get to go, ta-da, surprise, I'm fine now. He's drunk hemlock. And so people spent a really long time trying to work out what he could have meant. And generally, those readings were really anachronistic. People said, oh, well, he's suggesting that death is sort of the cure for life or that the afterlife is a better place. And it's like, well, yeah, that sounds a little Christian to me and Jesus won't be born for 400 more years. So, yeah, maybe, but it doesn't quite ring right. And then in the 20th century, somebody proposed a solution which is so elegant that it completely wins me over. And that is this. The ancient Greeks believed that people who were about to die had the second sight. All right, now, that sounds crazy to me. I'm sure it sounds crazy to you. But here's the thing. It probably didn't sound crazy to Plato, probably not to his readers. So in his last moments, Socrates has a vision of the future, and he suddenly sees, not that he is going to get better, but remember at the beginning of the dialogue, when we find out that Plato's ill? He sees that Plato is going to get better. And Plato will write these amazing dialogues that means that we have the legacy of Socrates for all time afterwards, or at least two and a half thousand years and counting. And that is why they owe a debt to Asclepius. That is the most elegant solution to a literary puzzle that I have come across in many a long year. And I like a locked room murder mystery. So there you go. <laughs> My final point for you is that Plato isn't his real name. Do you know this? Plato's a nickname. No, I know. It's a nickname in his lifetime. His real name was Aristocles, but he's always known as Plato. Um, and Platonos means broad, right? So people said it's because he's got this wide forehead because he was so clever. <laughs> this is like the Sherlock Holmes school of anatomy. <laughs> is it in the blue carbuncle where they find the man's hat and the... Yeah, it is, isn't it? The hat and the goose. And he says, well, he must be very clever. How do you know that, Holmes? Well, it's got such a big hat. What? <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> I'm glad that's how we're doing the maths now. Um, and so then people said, no, he was good at wrestling. Right? He had a reputation for being a good wrestler. And of course, you've got to be low. You've got to have a low center of gravity to be good at wrestling. You get knocked off your feet. But you can dress it up any way you want. Nothing will change the fact that for two and a half thousand years, we have known one of the greatest minds the Western world has ever held by the ancient Greek equivalent of fatso. It's just true. <laughs>
Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics was written and presented by me, Natalie Haynes. My guests were Philippa Perry and Professor Edith Hall. It was produced by the magnificent Mary Ward-Lowry.